nine books, six novels, three nonfiction. His last work, 1984, it was a timely warning, just old enough to be forgotten. Its ideas have too easily entered the lexicon and lost their potency as concepts. Today is 1984, it's 2023, and I'm Jackson Keats. We're going to see the key. So for context, just after World War II, when two prolific tyrants had proven terrifyingly capable of galvanizing a population under a brow of propaganda, is when this was written. This was 1949. So much like Nietzsche foresaw the 20th century in his writings after the death of God, Orwell saw the future tyrants in the tea leaves that would best the ones of the recent past. So the actual story of the book, most people likely have read it by now, but Winston Smith is a low-level party member. He works in the Ministry of Truth, where his job is to alter historical records to comport with the party. There's a rumored revolutionary named Goldstein, who is the lightning rod for the ire of the party and party members. They hold the two minutes hate. There are so many things that have been just memified or added to the general knowledge or consciousness from this book. It's, it's incredible, but... The Two Minutes Hate, where they show a picture of Goldstein and the whole convocation engaged in this ritualistic hate where they all yell at the screen, become uh, ravenous. And Winston, during this, he, he observes a lot of the people who are engaging in this, but eventually is swept away in the proceedings. There are also, as part of this world, the proles, who are kind of the poor people that fall outside of the interests of the party. So they generally do what they want to do. They're not observed in the same way, but they don't have the resources or the benefits. They're, they're the poor. So one day, of course, Winston buys a diary. And this is in the context of the world that's been set up here. This is a revolutionary act. It's something that he was not supposed to do. And even just the act of having bought it is enough to condemn him uh, without having written anything in it yet. So this really sets up what the stakes are under this regime. Now, during the two minutes hate, he had actually, there was another person, inner party leader, Winston's outer party. And he, just for a moment, he caught eyes with O'Brien who is, uh, like I said, a member of the inner party. But in that, in that moment, Winston perceived that there was something, something that was a little more to O'Brien than the rest of the party members. He perceived in that moment that O'Brien could have had his suspicions about the party and what the party was doing. Now remember, Winston, for his purposes, his job is to alter historical records. So he sees on a daily basis the things that were alleged history before being altered to conform with current history today. So his whole job is trying to deal internally with, with that fact. But anyway, so he gets the diary and he sits with his back to the telescreens. There are telescreens everywhere that observe people that members of the party will pop up on and demand that you do this or do that to engage in this exercise or eat this particular food. He sits with his back to the telescreen and he begins to write in this diary just the things that he thinks about Big Brother, the nomenclature for the party itself. So this is already an extremely dangerous act. His fate is essentially sealed by having done this, but he engages in it anyway. And then soon he receives uh, a letter from one of the other party members. This is a young woman that he had noticed before as part of the Two Minutes Hate, who was particularly ravenous, but she gives him a letter, 
And they have to be very careful about the way they communicate with each other, you know, in, in crowds, not for an extended period, but they have to set up these meetings. But he gets a letter from her that says, I love you. And so they set up a meeting. They end up meeting in this forest area where there are no telescreens and they're able to be open about what they think when it comes to the party and uh, what they think about history and Oceania and East Asia versus Eurasia. And so this continues. This continues. They have this relationship that's kind of a, a perverse version of the <laughs> romantic relationships that you'd have historically. She's very open about the fact that she's done this with many a party member. And that there's something about love in this context that doesn't mean the same as you might think. But they get to have this, you know, relative to the jobs that they work and and the oppression that is omnipresent wherever they go. But they discuss the possibility of O'Brien being a member of the Brotherhood, the underground group that is trying to resist the party. And eventually they're invited by O'Brien, the member of the inner party, to his home where they believe their suspicions about him being an undermining force and being a you know, secret mole are vindicated. So they go to see him. It's luxurious conditions where they go. And it seems they were right about O'Brien. And O'Brien gives them this book. And it's a book that was allegedly written by Goldstein. Goldstein is, again, the revolutionary who's supposed to be the, the source of the hate that people feel in the mornings when they're being riled up. But in this book, Goldstein, and this is something that wouldn't be available, you know, to people just in general. Goldstein identifies and describes everything the party is doing and how they do it. So this is corroborating everything that Winston thought about what the party was and he's he's truly understanding now and this gets into this part of it when he's reading the book you kind of leave Winston for a minute it becomes this more lecture on the structure of the society at this time and what this kind of a, a tyrannical government would look like but you go through and describes a bunch of different concepts and, and there are concepts that we were introduced to uh, earlier on that some are treated in the epilogue as well but things like Newspeak and it's it's structured to try to help Ingsoc, which is English socialism. It means the suppression of subversive concepts, such as personal identity, self-expression, and free will, and do that by means of manipulating the language. So the point is to mask ideological content. It's a restricted vocabulary. And Orwell himself, outside of this book, and within it impliedly, had talked about the decline and decadence of language, and means uh, that governments were using to do that at the time. But the real point was to eliminate the expression of the shades of meaning inherent in ambiguity and nuance. So you weren't allowed with the structure of the language. It tried to take away your ability to show ambiguity and to show nuance. It's trying to push you into extreme camps by means of the words that you're allowed to use and the restrictions on the kinds of words that entered into the lexicon. So rather than other kinds of languages or dictionaries where they add words over time and you, you get a, a larger selection of things to be able to use, the vocabulary here grew smaller every year. And this goes hand in hand with the idea of doublethink. So this is uh, embodied by the, the party slogan, War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. It's the acceptance of two contradictory opinions or beliefs at the same time, especially as a result of indoctrination. So the point is to undermine your belief or opinion or understanding of all concepts by forcing you to undermine the most essential concept, 
the law of non-contradiction, you know, the, the law of logic, that there is such a thing as reality or such thing as truth, you undermine that and then there's, there's nothing left. You can, you can believe anything, even two contradictory things at the same time. Another concept here is, is history. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. So Winston's job, as I said before, was to adjust all the records of history to align with the interests of the party. And they were able to do this by altering historical records and the perception of people that were members of history and just make it the case that they have always been right, no matter what happens or if they change their mind or if they are wrong about this or something goes wrong. They can change the recorded history to say that they were always right. And more important than having the ability to be able to do this, to be able to go back and, and change these things or have a, a monopoly on what history is, is the brute force of making people believe it. It's, it's not just that they have all the papers. Oh, look at the paper. The paper says. It's having the ability to brute force make people believe that it was actually the case. So then after this, he's with Julia. He's trying to read this book, and he's learning so many things about what happened and he's with Julia in this uh, room atop the place where he bought the original diary. And then the place is stormed by the thought police. Before he finishes the book and he's taken by the party. Once in custody, he is sent to room 101. Room 101 is built up within the story by other prisoners. But this is the place, this is the final resting place for any resistors to the regime. And in it, they break you down on every level. They happily say contradictory things and force you to believe them. Things that aren't true force you to accept them. They use pain and torture. And one of the things that struck me when I first read this book when I was a kid was that even though they told you that they were going to shoot you, they were going to kill you, it was extremely important to them to make you accept the party line first. You had to confess and agree and truly adhere and assent to the things that they believed, the things that they said, things that they asserted were true. You had to accept all those things before they were going to kill you, which didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> But in it, like I said, they talk about how the party controls everything, even reality, and there's nothing psychologically or philosophically that Winston could do. There were even moments where it turns out when O'Brien is revealed to having been working for the benefit of the party the whole time. This is another thing that was an absolute doozy to me, is that when Winston is in this situation where he feels like, okay, I have one person, one outlet, one revolutionary that I can count on, you know, it's kind of a father figure. But it turns out that O'Brien was actually a member of the party and the way that he acts when they're in room 101 and how he's breaking Winston down, it messes with your mind. It messes with your mind and what's actually within the best interest and, and what people should do, what people should think, what the party is and why why isn't O'Brien more self-interested on his own behalf and why is he so enthusiastic about ensuring that the party survives and maintains its power? But there were moments in this, this torture wherein O'Brien uh, anticipates what Winston's thinking and this is one of those things where you, you see it just deepening as it's going along and you're really concerned about how far this is going to go but 
Like there's one time when Winston's looking at him, he's thinking about, wait, why you're old and and decrepit, so the party's so powerful, but it isn't able to control that or make you young again or make you infinitely healthy and survive forever. It can't do that, but it's in control of everything. And he's just thinking these things, but O'Brien anticipates this and responds to them audibly. And then by the same token, Winston at one point he's he's just thinking to himself, okay, there's this concept, there's this philosophical concept that I'm thinking of that applies here, and I can't think of the word right now, but who cares? I'm just not going to think of it. And then O'Brien says, oh, you're thinking of a philosophical concept. I, I can tell right now it's solipsism is what you're considering, but it doesn't apply here. And so there are these times where it's just, it's deepening and deepening and you're like, oh my God, how far is this going to go? It would, it would be a kind of relief if Winston is simply killed. He was able to maintain a dignity against this onslaught, you know, the psychological onslaught and philosophical onslaught. It would be a relief for him to just be killed under these circumstances, but he's not. It's the complete domination of a person and what a person is. And then you end up seeing Winston and he's sitting at a place and he's playing chess and he's got a drink. And it's this kind of neutered version of what life is. And he's waiting for the announcement from the telescreen about what's going on with Oceania. He runs into Julia, but it turns out that, uh, you know, both of them betrayed each other to the party and neither of them feel anything for each other anymore. And the final line in the book is uh, what I can remember. It's, I love Big Brother. It's uh, the ultimate destruction, decapitation of a person, you know, over the course of the of the book. And it hit me like a brick when I was a kid. I, I just couldn't fathom how devastating that was. And, you know, at the time, you're you're thinking that, okay, yeah, I mean, it's serious. We just came out of, you know, World War II, and we had those two things, and those are all over the place when it comes to education. Everybody knows about them. So these kinds of methods, and this book is out, so <laughs> these kinds of methods are not going to be useful to a would-be tyrant of the future. And then we get to, you know, today. So anyway, there's a quote here, though, that I want to read. I think it really encapsulates what everything was about when it came to this book. So let me read it. Quote, Now I will tell you the answer to my question. It is this. The party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power, pure power. What pure power means, you will understand presently. We are different from the oligarchies of the past and that we know what we are doing. All the others, even those who resembled ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps they even believed, that they had seized power unwillingly and for a limited time, and that just around the corner there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now you begin to understand me. End quote. So again, this is kind of the logical endpoint of what a tyrannical government would look like. A truly tyrannical government that only has that interest. And it's uh, aptly depicted in this book. And, you know, recent events have made it... There was one thing that I think everybody questioned, at least historically, a few years ago they would have questioned, is that, you know, people in history that engage in these kinds of acts, that participated in these kinds of regimes, there was something uniquely 
barbaric about them or they just weren't paying close enough attention. If they had been paying attention, there's no way any of those things could have happened. But I think more and more now, uh, we see this as a... There's a kind of cycle and a boiling of the frog that happens that can get you to take membership willingly in this kind of a regime, in this kind of an action. Make you an instrument of all of the absolutist and tyrannical things that, you know, some would-be tyrant would want you to do. But big picture-wise, you certainly see a lot of this in the rhetorical and (laughs) extra-rhetorical methods of modern politics. Uh, The point of progressive politics is to garner submission. That's something that you see on a regular basis now. It's, It's not the point to even get people to just conform ideologically. It's not that they want to win the argument, and that's the point. It's submission for the sake of submission. And you can tell this by how ridiculous some of the assertions are. You know, when you have grown men acting out sexual fetishes in front of children, and people get outraged by this and um, find it ridiculous and disgusting that it's it's allowed anywhere. And then the repost is, how dare you, you bigot? <laughs> and there's just this incredible broadening of concepts and everything swept under one rug to say that it's completely unacceptable to be out- outraged by this, and you have to submit. If you even make one comment that's slightly out of the norm, you know, I think, what was it, Tony Dungy who said something about, he was giving a speech and it was about abortion or something like that, then you have to be made to submit. And there are aspects of Newspeak that you see, I mean, all over the place today. Things like Latinx or Latinx, the point of which to nullify the gendered characteristics of Spanish. You know, Spanish has gendered language. There are masculine and feminine words. So the point is to nullify that. Uh, you know, the definition of woman, that's uh, an incredible one, an incredible example of Newspeak. What does that actually mean anymore? It deliberately doesn't mean anything, and you're supposed to accept that that doesn't mean anything. The point being submission. White supremacists, this is something that happened very, very recently, is that there was the um, clearly unlawful beating of uh, somebody who had been, you know, allegedly pulled over for reckless driving, but it doesn't matter. I don't care if he was pulled over for murder, <laughs> mass murder. This This kind of a beating was, to me, beyond the pale. It was conducted by four black officers against a black suspect, and there was still, what was his name, Van Jones, the CNN contributor. He wrote this article about how it could still be white supremacy because of this and this and this. The the point is that the, the term doesn't mean anything. All the terms are being washed out to not actually mean anything in particular. They're just supposed to be uh, emotionally engaging. Uh, Violence is another one of those terms that used to mean something very particular. And there was a distinction so that you could use language to have those distinctions. But it's, it's being removed, that distinction. So violence now can mean, you know, just things that are said on the internet. That's equivalent to violence. Or thinking one idea over another idea. Just actual thought crime is that that's engaging in violence. Illegal alien is another one. That one was uh, banned that you can't say illegal alien. And it's supposed to be replaced by immigrant, which, again, it's supposed to nullify the nuance and ambiguity that you can create, the gray areas that you can create when you get to use language precisely. So immigrant, just in general, can mean a whole bunch of different things. It can mean, you know, somebody who's here illegally or legally, somebody who came here is now a naturalized citizen, or came here has a particular status, or came here and doesn't have any status and shouldn't be here. It can mean all those things, but they try to nullify your ability to have nuance in that, that conceptual context. 
And just aside from politics in general, we have uh, this whole idea of names. And this is something that's really interesting to me is that names are so different today with online presences. You know, we used to have names with classical correlates. A lot of the times they'd be named for somebody who accomplished something great or somebody who was part of the family. You know, and you'd switch around the middle names and first names and all those sorts of things. So it shows your pedigree within your family and has that connection. Or at the very least, it was some reference to uh, what your parents thought or what your parents liked or what your parents wanted for you or something. Something like that. So there was that connection to it. But today, our names are more often with our digital presence, which has much more reach than our, you know, individual geographical presence. We often change our names to something that we decided we decided on. We decided this is going to be our name instead. So there's a whole bunch that is just changing the way that we communicate about people and about history and about each other. And all of that has an impact on who we are and what we do, our behavior, what we're likely to do, what we're likely to be interested in or not interested in. All of that is going to impact it. The primary way that we communicate, especially when it's online, is through just the words, the language themselves, the language itself. You know, in person, we can communicate with body language and emotional reactions and uh, a million different ways that are not discernible when you send a text or when you send a tweet. And that's more and more just a means of nullifying that nuance. So anyway, uh, Lex Friedman, he <laughs> published this book list that he was going to try to read for 2023. And on that book list was 1984. And, and this is one of the dumbest things that I think is emblematic of a lot of dumb things is that uh, some people were saying, what, you haven't read 1984 before? <laughs> and so you're just reading it for the first time. And shouldn't you be more advanced or educated at this point? Uh, there were a lot of really, really stupid alleged controversies. But this is one of those things. Cause obviously, it's Lex Friedman is, is a very educated, very intelligent guy. Uh, he's likely read 1984 a few times by this point in his life. Even if he hadn't, what does it matter? What does it matter in any way, shape, or form? The guy is a researcher for artificial intelligence and does a podcast that is one of the most widely viewed and respected podcasts in the world. And people are trying to manufacture this controversy about his, his reading list being too mundane or suggesting that he hadn't explored these books before. It's just, it's so utterly ridiculous. But the point is we have to be wary of the things that we are actually spending our energy on. You know, we do have a limited amount of time, and yes, it's great to be aggressive in trying to do things that that may or may not provide dividends, you know, long-term, but something as stupid as sending a, a textual online message to call out something so ridiculous, uh, it just bothered me that we're in this state of things, that that would be worth doing or responding to, or responding to the response like I am right now. It's just, it's kind of a ridiculous situation. That that is where we are pressing our attention. But we certainly are a fallen race, and uh, there's got to be some means of lifting ourselves up, you know, if not to the stratosphere, then at least out of the ravine. Anyway, uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening to this one, and I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, I will see you, see you on the next one. 